0: Greetings from the north, citizens of the world, welcome. Good people, are you old enough to remember the 2012 craze? After the date came and went, many doomsday prophets got unemployed, many survivalists returned to society, and New Agers went the spiritualized road, retaining a metaphoric meaning of this, I have to say, anticlimactic transitional date. Everyone who was gripped by the scare were nowhere to be found anymore, except they were competing in distancing themselves from it, ridiculing those who hadn't let it go yet, and pretending they never took it seriously. Reminds me of all those who supported the retarded war against terror. You'll be hard-pressed finding anyone who still cheers on the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, and later Syria and Libya. And of course, the same is about to be true about the bots who indeed insisted on the incredibly suicidal and destructive pandemic policies we've suffered from. Although that oil tanker is only halfway turned as I speak. Such is the human condition. For every wise there is a hundred fools. For every independent thinker, there is a hundred drones, and nothing is new under the sun. Well, what if, and let's imagine this together now, there never was a 2012 hype? What if it had been, let's say, 2024 instead? Don't you think the same would repeat? Of course it would, perhaps even worse, seeing as that people have more trust in public authorities and our sick contemporary civilization back then compared to today. But what if the 2012 date simply was wrong? What if that particular dating is due to incompetent and erratic math? What if 2012, whatever that date was meant to signify, still lies ahead of us? If it became generally known, would it whip up a new frenzy? I don't know. We can only speculate. However, what I do know is that this is actually the case. The 2012 date was indeed a misinterpretation of the end of the current Maya Bakhtun, which... Incredibly, then places the new date in harmony with the platonic great year and the Indian Yuga, as well as other ancient calendars. And to get an idea of what lies ahead of us, I recommend Graham Hancock's new series on Netflix called Ancient Apocalypse. And I also refer you to my interview with Freddie Silva called Absent Lands*. And pay particular attention to what he says about the torrid meteor shower, as well as my conversation with Dr. Robert Schock called Demise of the Ice Age Civilization and what he says of the cycles of the sun, and my more recent dark star conversation with Walter Crutton about these huge cycles. But as for tonight on the forum we have a special guest who, with the help of our regular guest, Stacy James, will guide us through obscure historic passages relating to several topics we've poked into in our many shows from ancient civilizations to vikings templars and oak island and of course 2012 and here's a taste of what's coming
1: from 1392 to 1492 the portuguese had a map of the world and they went around creating colonies and when bartholomew and christopher uh, stole the map and redrew it, Jeez. making Africa look much larger, so that it would discourage anybody trying to sail east. They made that look like it was way too, way too far to try, mm. and, and so they sold that map to the King of uh, Portugal. And, <laughs> and 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 when 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 he discovered something, the first place he went back was not to Spain, it, it was to it was to Lisbon and 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 they you know, they knew what they had done. Uh, he worked in uh, uh, his son's man-making office, for Christ's sake. So they knew exactly what they'd done. So to keep these Christian countries from this meant that those colonies which they had created would now go into Spanish control. Mm. And so the Pope had to work out an agreement so that the Portuguese could retain their colonies. And the, and the lie
2: about Christopher Colonies
1: Columbus in America, yeah. <laughs> that lie, you
0: know, is like the, uh, the single bullet theory. People will listen to this. We are long gone. We are long gone. But someone will listen to this. Now, can you give them, um, I don't know, your your thoughts about what they can expect? What does the lore say? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, he can. Okay, let's hear it.
1: All right. Well, in the Aztec calendar. The symbol for this age that we are in is the symbol motion, or earthquake. And that would indicate that this world age ends by earthquake. But in the Chilam Balaam, he mentions, and I say he, I'm talking about uh, Lord Jaguar, the Jaguar priest. And he mentions what is uh, going to occur. Oh, wow. And he tells us that it will be 13 cycles Zero katoons, zero tuns, zero winals, zero kins since the beginning of the great saga. Four ahu, three king kin, ninth lord of the night, moon will be eight days old, third lunation in a series of six. What is to happen? The sky is then divided. The land is raised. And then there begins the book of the 13 gods. Then occurs the great flooding of the earth. Then arises the great Itzan Kaba'in, the ending of the word, the fold of the Katoon. That is a flood which will be the ending of the word of the Katoon.
0: And that was the voice of our guest tonight, the Native American traditionalist, artist, and longtime student of the Maya culture, Lauren Jeffries. As a member of the Powhatan tribe, and I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation of that, a descendant of Pocahontas and a scholar of ancient Mesoamerican culture, and with a four-decade study and research of the Mayan calendrics, he has cracked the code of their system and been able to translate its meaning. His groundbreaking book on this called The Sacred Count, The Fractal Calendar of Ancient Mesoamerica, which, by the way, is almost sold out, save a few secondhand copies, Was written before 2012. Now, Mr. Jeffries has been a practicing artist and a draftsman for over 50 years, influenced by Henry Shakovsky and Rudy Pozate, and was a University of Louisville alumnus graduating with a master's degree in art history. Being a man of many talents, he has written extensively pertaining to history, reflecting his love for Mesoamerican and Native American culture, as also seen in his art. Another passion of his is the spiritual path, of which he is tight-lipped, but sufficient to say. He's been trained in Native traditions and is an initiate of such esoteric lore and currents. In addition to this, as an avid user of the Louisville University Library of Rare Editions, And as a collector and researcher of ancient artifacts, he eventually started to publish the discoveries and interpretations his unique perspective allowed. He used to run a radio station in St. Louis, but his main tool of communication is writing and speaking, and has issued many papers and articles as well as been a lecturer for many of the professional communities of history, art and archaeology he's a member of. Like the Midwestern Epigraphic Society, of which he is a co founder, Ancient Kentucky Historical Association, of which he is their historian and Native American consultant, American Institute for Conservation of Historic and Artistic Works, and the Indigenous People's Research Foundation, which was established to protect And research recovered intriguing artifacts and more fully understand the pre Columbian history of America's indigenous cultures. When Lauren is not consumed with writing, researching, lecturing on historic topics, he's busy in his studio space with his main passion, which is creative work, where he has set on display his supplies, tools, woodblocks, sketches, and prints, formatted by skilled tricks mastery of techniques and virtuosity, of which particular traditional skill set is almost lost today. Obviously a master of a wide variety of historical topics. He's even studied under Velikovsky's secretary and right-hand man, Professor Warner Sizemore, who said this about his book. Lauren Jeffrey's discovery of the meaning of the mystery numbers in the Maya calendar and the implications of that culture's understanding of fractals and the golden mean are exciting and revolutionary. This recounting of his history of curiosity reads like a detective story for those with an interest in the mysterious Maya. About his important work, unraveling the meaning of the heretofore undiscovered workings of the ancient sacred counts, he says, I began with a simple intent to investigate, for the sake of curiosity, the mystery of the calendar system of ancient Mesoamerica. The fact that no one had explained how or why this system was devised began to interest me. Scores of writers have written on this subject, so there was plenty material available. However, to my knowledge, no satisfactory explanation has ever been put forward. It was a mathematical mystery begging to be resolved. Now, having read it, I can confirm that his book indeed answers the questions. And yes, 2012 hasn't happened yet, but it is coming. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Lauren.
1: Yes, thank you. Yeah. But uh, let me just say that I am thrilled to get to speak with you because you have uh, so many interests that are parallel to my own. I find you a very interesting guy. I got so many questions for you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Great. It's a great uh, starting point. Yes. And welcome to you. Welcome back, Stacy.
2: Hey, thanks.
0: Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah. So, uh, like I said in the introduction, we have Stacey here as our third wheel on the wagon. <laughs> Girl, <thanks.
2: laughs> to help out.
0: <laughs> to, to help out if it <laughs> turns over. So, Lauren, um, before we started here, we already went into interesting stuff, but even though they've heard your background officially, could you just recap how you even though you're a native it doesn't follow automatically from there that you would be interested in these things. So how did you wake up to these realities? Has it always been a part of, of your life and your culture and your tribe or whatever? Or have you personally been on a journey to wake up to this dimension?
1: Well, I, I could write a book about that, I suppose. <laughs> I don't have a good answer for you uh, on that. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know how to say. Uh, I've had a extraordinary background. Uh, I'm interested in many things. And um, many of these things are things that you've covered in your programs. And uh, they're things that, you know, are, are, are coming to bear upon the, Although most people are not aware of them, they're coming to bear upon their their lives. And uh, there's so many people who are asleep. Yeah, Uh that's why I love your friend uh, Doctor Farrell so much.
0: Mm, thank you. Uh, well, it, uh, it's always fun when a guest is familiar with the show. Yeah. Now, w- what is your tribe? Powhatan. Is that the Kentucky area? Well, no. Uh,
1: my tribe—it's the tribe that you know. You probably, maybe, would recognize it as Powhatan. You umlaut that uh, that head is Powhatan. Right. So, you know, I don't have an explanation um, for the direction of this journey, but it has been an extraordinary one, and uh, I can share a little bit of it with you here.
0: Mm. Yeah, because where I'm, what I'm getting at is what made you turn to, you know, to, to find out things about your roots, uh, the, the, the native calendar... Uh, I'm assuming you. You. Is it fair to call you a shaman? Uh,
1: you know, I I don't like that word, and I don't know. I don't know one who would claim to be one. And it's like Mark Twain. I wouldn't be a member of any club that would have me.
0: <laughs> right, um, right. I believe. I believe it's an Asian word, maybe. Uh, I yeah, have a an-
1: a paradigm, that's it. Like in, in native cultures, they have different uh, terminologies for that. Right. You know, you guys were talking about that the other day, I think in one of the, the talks you did together. Mm-hmm. Um, you brought up the idea of the novels. Yes. And um, I think maybe that Tracy calls it inaugurals, but it's one of those words where you don't pronounce the G. It's now. Mm. And it's the concept of the, the tonal or the tonal and the now. The tonal or tonal is the materium. Mm-hmm. That's the material world. And the now is the invisible force moving through it. Huh? Right. Are you familiar with the, maybe Carlos Castaneda talks about that in in some of his? Yes, yeah,
0: so so much superficially. I, I've read more of uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, the Toltec author. If you're familiar with him, no, uh,
1: you're not going to like what I had to say about about the Toltecs. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I don't, I don't have any sides here. I'm just uh, collecting info. But no problem. anyway, but
1: there are just so many things I want to talk to you about. Uh, things that have come up in your work and parallel interests that we have. You know your um, your friend, Doctor Farrell. Right. He is one of my favorites, but strangely enough, not for uh, the reasons that you pursued with him.
0: <laughs> okay. Which are
1: all delightful, by the way.
0: What's your favorite with uh, Pharrell?
1: Well, my particular interest there is the ancient texts that he deals with, and particularly right. the area of the, the power stones, the the set of 54 gemstones that were the technology right. of the Anunnaki. Right. And he talks about that a little bit. He's a very interesting guy. One of the one of the best minds of our generation.
0: I did uh, I did a show with him on that topic. You you will probably enjoy that show. It's called.
1: Uh, uh, well, I most certainly would because I'm very interested in that subject, and I was just thrilled in the Diana Muir um, discovery. Uh, uh, please please don't tell me that's a fake. Because that's such an exciting thing. They even mentioned the, a green tablet among those uh, among the cargo of one of those ships.
0: Right. So you listen to that one. I I think it's genuine, because it checks out in terms of the Norse and of the deal. Mm-hmm. But I'm not qualified to say anything about uh, Native American and. But you probably heard my interview with Scott Walter, right? Yeah. Hmm. And he, he um, passed it on to like esoteric natives who, who confirmed. So I think we're on something huge there. And I'm going to contact uh, Scott and Diane because they only have the longitude. And I've found a latitude from a researcher, Peter Amundsen, Who who's from Norway? So I'm going to ask them to combine his latitude with their longitude, and I think they're going to find something. Yes,
1: that uh, that Sinclair story is uh, is so very very important. It's going to change our history. Uh, Yeah, and I I, I'd been into that family before uh, along this uh, this other other line, but they just become so important. Uh, to the whole history there, and what a marvelous
0: uh, yeah! What but Laura can we talk about that in the show, even though it's not in your book? Is that okay?
1: Can we talk about that in this interview? You mean? Yeah, I mean, sure. it,
0: Yeah, if you have something to add, anything, some, anything,
1: anything you want to talk about, great game. <laughs> okay,
0: uh, sure. Okay so before we started we were talking briefly about Oak Island and I made the uh, observation that in one of the latest shows it actually has turned um, off all exploration on the island right now they discovered micmac pottery yes. from the same time period where they suspect the templars visited so we're talking about uh, treasures that they brought to the natives mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, do you pay attention to the Oak Island uh, series on television? Oh,
1: I was, uh, I think I was off of Oak Island by the time it became a a craze, but yes, of course, Um, yes.
0: So the latest now, they found uh, Micmac pottery. And I find that super interesting because it dovetails with the time frame that they're investigating, right, which is 1400 to 1600. Mm-hmm. And we know that if it's Micmacs, then Templar connections are very likely. <laughs> and of course, we, we already know that the Micmac flag is super similar to the Templar flag. Yeah, no. Do you have uh, any musings around uh, these aspects of the history?
1: Well, not that I really want to go in with, but the well, you know all about the Madewin Society, right?
0: Yeah, Madewin.
1: Well, we were talking about uh, the Templar treasures and how they connect with the story about the Power Stones, the the Tablets of Destiny. I was aware of these things years ago because I had I had some Abenaki uh, friends, uh, Mi'kmaq friends up there mm-hmm. um, and the the Abenaki people keep a lot of these traditions as well uh, and and so that's known and I recognized in, in some of the traditions that they were talking about the Sinclairs
0: Right, um, right
1: I don't know how far to go down that road with you.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a huge road. I'm sorry? Yeah, it's a long road, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, okay, uh, well, look here. When those boys
1: discovered Oak Island, mm-hmm. uh, or discovered the the pulley, huh? Mm-hmm. The pulley that was that was hanging over this place where they later dug, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that tell you? Now, if you if you had buried a treasure there, would you leave the pulley there to tell everyone else this is the place to dig. <laughs> no, it's, the only
0: reason you leave the for- it's it's either a decoy or it's something else and treasure.
1: Well, it's go ahead and dig here if you want to. We got what we want, um, mm. so it doesn't make sense if you had buried something there that you would leave the clear sign of the pulley right there. So that's a there's a red herring right there, and. Um, there boy, there's there's so many red herrings there. Uh, I I don't want to use all your time going over those, but I do want to tell you something about the Toltecs. Mm-hmm. This is a word that comes to us from something very ancient, and and what it is is people from Tula, and Tula oh. is a reed. It's it is a Someone from Tula is from the place of the mat or the reed mat.
3: Mm.
1: It's people of the reed mat. And, and in ancient times, even before they, they did agriculture, it, it, in that part of the world, you had to have some water for your, yourself, for your, that, the animals, your prey that you were hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a place of water... Where these uh, tulies, if when someone says they're out in the tulies, they're saying, I'm out in the tall grass. Mm. And, and these, uh, these, this tall grass would grow, and, and, and those people would take that grass and weave that into grass mats. And they had a mat to lay down on. And it, it, it became a symbol. Of the, the reed mat became this, the king sat on a reed mat you see these pictures of the, of this king from this village and this king from this village at the Essex of Concord they're all sitting on a reed mat it has become the symbol of our ancestors, the people of the grass mat and, and that's what that's where the whole uh, the meaning of that word comes from it is the idea of the originators of weaving, the mm-hmm. originators of law and order of legitimate authority, and so when they got around to to building in stone, they replicated that pattern of the the, the crosshatch legitimate hegemony. Mm. So we have a word that, that we use here. Uh, well, we got a lot of words that really don't have anything to do with what they really are. One of the words that we use is uh, Anasazi. And there weren't any Anasazi. I mean, there were actual people who built those uh, stone uh, dwellings in the cliffs in the southwest.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: There were Those were actual people, but they weren't Anasazi. That's a name that we give them. And, and it comes from some other native language, which means... Uh, The old uh, ancient enemies. Hmm. Um, That name really refers to an idea of the perfect, uh, our ancestors, the people who gave us weaving, who gave us an ordered uh, existence. And so that's what Toltec has come to mean. There weren't any Toltecs. We don't know what the, we don't even know who's the people who built Teotihuacan were mm. uh, that was in ruins uh, before the people that we call Toltec now mm. those tribes the chichimek and, and other tribes came to do there the Toltec is an idea and uh, I'm I'm with those scholars who say when we go looking for Toltec we're not going to find them mm. and uh, if you know any Toltec shaman you be careful. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, well, I, I just went by what I read from Ruiz. He he says that Toltecs aren't really a tribe. He says they're more like, um, I don't know the word, like a caste or a class of philosophers, like philosopher priests. They're initiates. Um I suppose maybe pretty similar to Maydian. Yeah,
1: if you were in a bar and somebody sits down to you and they tell you that they're mm. uh, they're James Bond, and um, <laughs> well, that's illogical. Right. A shaman is not going to... You know what a shaman is? A shaman, you go to the village and you go to the outskirts of the village
3: mm-hmm.
1: and you find the greasy door. Greasy door means that this is where people go. This is where, when you want help, this is where you go. Mm. That door is greasy because there have been a lot of people there looking for help. This is where somebody who lives who can do something. They're doers. Mm. Echo, the H men, uh, they're, they're called down there. Uh, these are nowls. Huh? Mm-hmm. You know, I was at one of these um, places. Where, have you seen these giant, um, their fabric sewn together and they pump air into the bottom and they, the figures dance around big dinosaurs or, or dancing men or women or tires or donut men or, or whatever? Yeah. Have you ever seen what I'm talking
0: about? Yeah, I think so.
1: Well, that, that's a perfect example of this, the tonal and the nowall, the form is sewn into the into the fabric, and there's a fan generating hot air, and it and it goes in at the bottom, and it can't do anything but rise and, and go out, and, and it animates the form. Huh? Mm. The now it's a, I don't know. In some ways, it's similar to the Eastern yin yang idea, but it's it's a concept native to this land. And it goes by the name of Toltec uh, in that tradition, and I'll buy that. Um, yeah,
0: that's interesting.
1: But, um, well, anyway, I was telling you about people who can do things. People yeah. who can do things don't talk about it. They do it.
0: I agree. Uh, Completely. And, and so beware. I mean, most of those people who call themselves shamans, they are into it for the tourism. They are into, you know, New Ages coming over. They say, don't have anything
1: to do with anybody who calls himself a shaman.
0: Yeah, uh, Run. <laughs> I mean, it's the same in the West. Uh, a real alchemist did not call himself an alchemist. Everybody knew that if someone called themselves an alchemist, they were quacks. They were either con man or just self deluded this is a universal rule in spirituality someone who is a master has no need to declare his mastership you see what i mean then explain to me explain to me mm-hmm. uh
1: what how does someone like richard Hackett and and john d
0: how do they come to prominence huh John D. Well, John D. Uh, Through hard work, obviously, uh, but uh, of course he was also helping out with uh, intelligence matters. That always helps. <laughs> uh,
3: mm-hmm.
0: Well, okay. yeah, John D. was was uh, ironically he was uh, uh, not just like a visitor; he was also like a political advisor to the Queen, and he, and he was involved in many many obscure uh, matters.
3: Um, but I,
0: I want to—I I want us to go further back because I know there's a lot of legends, myths, stories among Native Indians, where you talk about stuff in the past. You talk about like the uh, like an ancient civilization, and also you talk about having vis uh, visitors who are, from descriptions, they are white people. Obviously, I'm talking about before the conquistadors. So, do you have any insights from the rich lore of the Americas about these matters that you can share with us?
1: Mm, you know, uh, I hesitate. I hesitate to... Let me, let me I let just jump in, in here. He, he does
0: hesitate. Yeah, what's that, Stassi?
2: Oh, I was just going to say that, uh, yeah, I mean, Lauren, we've had, you know, I would say close to 50 or 60 hours of conversations about this kind of thing. But he is hesitant to talk about it. And I think it's interesting to know why he's hesitant about it. So why don't you talk about why you're hesitant? Sure, he can he can tell us
0: why. But also, I'm totally fine with normally when people are in that position, there are some things they are good with talking about and some things they're not good talking about. And oh, I'm, he's
2: great talking about
0: this stuff. It's just... That, yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm fine with withholding information as long as we are made aware of it. No problem.
1: Gee whiz. All right. Uh, how do I best say this? Among my son's mother's people, they do these... Uh, they do these dances with these um, figures that wear these tall hats. They represent these people who are twelve or fourteen feet tall, mm-hmm. and they tell them if someone comes to your door and and asks if you are of this clan, you are to close the door and not answer the door mm. because they're coming to wipe you out. Mm. And, and what it, what it, what it amounts to is a visitation from, I think the, I think this old grandmother was, uh, I think maybe she was blind and she was telling people, they're coming, they're coming. And, uh, they said, oh, grandma, no, but then they, they came and, and yes, they tell stories like this. Now, you know, maybe I say too much to you here, uh, I know sometimes when people say too much, some of them will say, hey, you've said enough. Uh, but I understand what their hesitation is to tell these stories and share them uh, because they have been through this before. Yeah. They know they're coming,
0: to, they're coming to wipe you out. Yeah. And um, so, yes. They're, they're- but, 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 Lauren, hasn't that happened already? Isn't it a bit late?
1: Um, well, it is, it is so strange that it is not all over yet. Mm. It's still going on, as you are well aware. Right.
0: Good point. Mm.
1: Yeah, we are seeing the, maybe it may be the final act, but we're just seeing a, another, another rendition of the same thing.
0: Yeah, um, I mean we live in a cyclical world. Uh, nothing new under the sun, as they say. And and uh, speaking of that, we're going to go into your book a little later. But I, I still want to pick your brains about generalities. So you listen to my show with Scott Walter and with Diana Muir, and yes. yeah. And uh, what's so utterly fascinating for me is that the ancient Norse, when they came to Americas, North Americas they had little problem um, relating to the natives on a spiritual level. They had a huge problem doing that when the conquistadors came because by that time we we had a new religion, right? We had this uh, invasion religion, this monotheistic power-based religion. But when ancient Norse came, they were... I mean, it's it's a nature religion. It's the same kind of thing. Sure. So that's I think why they were able to get so well along with, for example, the Mi'kmaqs. And uh, actually better along with them than they went uh, went along with the Eskimos. There was more friction there, although there were trade there too. So when you uh, studied these things and grew up and everything, did you ever hear stories about Vikings coming to the Americas?
1: Oh, you bet. You bet. I think there is uh, plenty of evidence for that. And you, I think you've covered some of that with um, uh, Scott Walter. And uh, of course, you're familiar with the Kensington Stone. You're familiar with all the uh, journeys with Diana Muir uh, records 1355, 1358, yeah. 1395, 1398, and, and on and on and on. There's, that goes on for 800 years? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. 800 years? That's unbelievable. It's amazing. Mm. Unbelievable. Mm. And there's so much there that that uh, conjoins with, like, uh, one thing that, that I'm amazed that you haven't covered this story yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing that happened mecca a number of years ago where the crane fell over and there was a mass hysteria and all these people were trampled to death and the story that later came out about them retrieving uh, whatever had killed those workers underneath the who were working underneath the dome of the rock anyway they they retrieved this thing they put it on a they gave it to the They gave it to the Russians, and that was not explained to me at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Russians put it aboard the Vladivostok or whatever and put it on a convoy with uh, aircraft carrier destroyers, took it down to Antarctica, and it was about the time that uh, everybody was going down there. Um, And, uh, I mean, I still haven't figured out what... uh, what would make uh, Newt Gingrich and uh, John Kerry traveling companions
3: uh, <laughs>
1: I, 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 on Election Day? Like, right. There is so much unexplained about all of that. But what is what has gone on down there and what goes on today, uh, people don't connect those things. And as long as they're disconnected by what?
2: Stacy? Are you there? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, just to add to that, that uh, don't forget that um, uh, Herr Hale Klaus Schwab is on his way down there right now uh, on a group of four as well, by the way. Uh, So it's a large group of four that's going down there. They're pretty excited about it, according Hmm. to a dark journalist. And um, so it should be fairly interesting to see what goes on as a result of that. But what do you think is happening down there, Lauren? What, What do you think in terms of the scope of your work and your history uh one of the things that i think is very interesting about you is it used to be the official historian what was that uh, organization that you were a part of that you were official historian for
1: well i'm um, you know I'm, I'm glad you're here because you, you bring up uh, something else uh, you're right the ancient kentucky historical association yes yes uh, exactly uh, Through that organization, I learned about the ancient Welsh expedition here to Louisville in 574. And that plays into this whole story. These Welsh people who came here, it was a comet that went over Wales in 562. And the effects of it, they said that not a blade of grass would grow They weren't getting sunlight uh, and and people were moving down to Normandy and 10 years after this, they were still feeling the effects of this this comet because in 562, when this comet occurred, Madoc, who was the Commodore of the Welsh Navy and brother of King Arthur, he was at sea when this occurred and he was cast ashore in the Americas. And 10 years later, he returns to Wales with two native sons. And they are still feeling the effects of this uh, terrible uh, calamity, cataclysm that had occurred. And uh, one of uh, one of dark sons it's quoted in the works of Taliesin, who I don't know whether you know or not. That is uh, Merlin. Yeah. Anyway, is it, it, quoted the conversation he has with with King Arthur, telling him about the land here and how it didn't. You know, it's not suffering the effects of uh, of this calamity, and and how it's not well defended, and he can take the land. And they organize a. A migration. It amounts to seven hundred ships. Wow! Um, came here. They sent two exp two expeditions uh, to ascertain the truth of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one came back and said, "Yeah, it's there." Like he says, and then uh, they sent uh, the then commodore, uh, and and he came back and said, "Yep, it's it, this is correct." And so, in five seventy four, they bring seven hundred ships. They come up to. The Ohio, and at the place where it, where the Ohio joins into Mississippi, the, I think the Ohio looks to be the main current. Mm -hmm. It's wider than the current that goes on up and and dribbles into nothing up in Minnesota or or whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But anyway, I think they came up, what they thought was the main current, which was the Ohio, but they had to stop at Louisville because... Well, it wasn't Louisville then, but there's a falls there. And uh, in the ancient days, the buffalo had had worn a trail to the falls of the Ohio because they could walk across there in the shallow water. And it's the only, like, Ohio is a mile wide. It's, it's quite a river. So okay. uh, anyway... This story of the Welsh and those scholars and how they connect with your uh, your friend uh, Dr. Farrell and uh, what he has to say about those Stones of Destiny and right. Uh, right. what that has to do with uh, us going into uh, uh, Iraq and uh, camping on the ancient site of Eridu and right. excavating there and various things like that that people do not connect. Anyway,
0: yes, <laughs> go ahead. Wow, that, yeah. well, that's quite the curveball. Yeah, uh, the the tablets of destiny, all that stuff. But uh, where I was going was uh, a bit later because I talked with Stacey in my uh, – you remember Stacey? By the way, Stacey, excellent quality on your sound. So magic has obviously happened at your end since last we spoke.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's why I wanted to redo some of our episodes. And you're like, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's so well, much work. Well, now you work. understand. It's so much work, man. <laughs> I know. But I know.
0: it's a kingly quality. It's like you're going to read some kind of advertisement thing or something any minute.
2: Well, you know, as you go along and I'm I'm basically getting into this podcast game, I just gave in and invested in the, the proper You weapons. sound
0: like the host. You, your quality. <laughs> yeah, you're... I'm jealous. Well, here.
2: you know, back to back to what was Lauren was sort of alluding to there. There's just a treasure trove of of these stories that that he knows of. Yeah. As a result of. Yeah, and I'm
0: I'm going to pick his brain for that. But you remember yeah. you and me, we talked about mm-hmm. um, people coming to the Americas prior to the Conquistadors, yes, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. And you made a you made a convoluted, obscure statement. You said you should talk with uh, Lauren about that, and that was when we talked about. I think you mentioned Portuguese who may have come to the Americas before, um, at least before the yeah, Conquistadors. Yeah. He
2: was. He he has explained to me um, some stories, if you don't mind my saying, Lorne, about uh, the map makers and the sort of long term relationships that had been going on here between the Americas and uh, and Europe. Before the so called conquest, which really was a conquest, it was like, okay, well, we know it's there. We've been going there and trading with these people for a long time. Now we're going to take over. That is basically the gist of what the conquest is. Mm -hmm. This idea, uh, and again, I think it's better if Lauren tells this story, but the idea, just to set it up or set him up, is to um, talk about the fact that there was this long standing interaction between the continents. Right. uh, You know, and he's just obviously thrown a, a major curveball into the whole Arthurian legend, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that kind of thing is, is there in his, I mean, in his repertoire, if you will. But Lauren, we were talking about the map makers, uh, that informed, what's his name, uh, Christopher Columbus, of the existence of all the peoples here and the lands here and everything. Right. Uh, could you speak on that? Do you feel like you want to speak on that? Because I find that to be one of the most interesting stories that you tell about pre-conquest interactions. Well,
1: you know, I don't know where to, where to start there. Uh, are you aware that Christopher Columbus's brother, Bartholomew, worked in the map-making office of Henry the Navigator?
0: Wow. No. You didn't know that? No, this is news to me. Go on.
2: Oh, well, you're going to like this. Yeah, yeah. this uh, this is exactly what I was trying to get him onto. Yes, yeah. exactly.
0: Go on. So, uh, along about
1: 1300, if I can back up here a moment, Marco Polo comes back from the Silk Road. And, uh, 30, you know, 7, we have this action going on in France where these guys, the Templars, are running to shelter in Portugal and Scotland, and perhaps even to the Americas then. Yeah. And we have all this activity going on. I've got all these dates uh, in the 14th century, 1355, 95, 98, 1360. Are you, are you familiar with the Friars' map of North America, yeah. 1360? Yeah. That's an excellent source. Gunnar Gunnar Thompson, is yeah. that his name? Yeah. Excellent source. Anyway, the Christian countries were at war with the Islamic countries, and they were saying that you, you either have to uh, convert to Christianity or leave or die. And the same thing was they had pushed the uh, uh, Templars out of the Holy Land and they would not allow them entry unless they converted to Islam. Mm. So we have this character. I believe he uh, believe he is um, Genovese. Christopher Columbus was Genovese. Here, is that correct?
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I believe he's Genovese. And
1: so he wants to go to Cathay. And he wants to travel the Silk Road to do it. And he can't get entry into uh, the Islamic countries to do that. So he converts to Islam. He travels through, uh, I guess, the Harappa uh, Highway. And he winds up in Calcutta. And he rise there just at the time that one of these uh, barges, these uh, huge ocean-going barges that the Chinese constructed, Mm -hmm. and they would constructed a load of these things because they were had embarked on a worldwide program to map the world and to open China to the world, and they were encouraging ambassadors and dignitaries uh, to board their their barges and and they would take them to Beijing and so Niccolo Conti boards one of these uh, barges and it takes him to Beijing and in this uh, in this volume on this story there's this wonderful picture that it, ha- it has the emperor and I think is uh, I probably don't pronounce his name correctly uh, maybe I won't even try anyway. <laughs> <laughs> he's standing there He's the center of attention And he's a huge guy And and under his shoulder there Is this little Italian guy Nico And in the background Are these five Huge eunuchs Who were the admirals Of these uh, various uh, fleets uh, Of these barges That went around and mapped the world And on the table in front of them Is the map of the world wow. And so here we have in 1392, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. In 1392, an Italian, well, he was, they didn't have Italians, so they had what, Geno- Genovese, and you were either Venetian or wherever you were from. Anyway,
3: yeah.
1: uh, he had a map of the world, but he could not get entry into a Christian country. Mm. And so. It's a bit of a mystery to me what the relationship between Bartholomew and Christopher and Mr. Conte was. But the deal was made that Nicolai would give the map to the King of Portugal Mm
3: -hmm.
1: for entry into a Christian country. Mm. And so in 1392, the King of Portugal. Whose father uh, to uh, Henry the Navigator, right,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and his uh, school, he has possession of a map of the world that the Chinese have made that shows it all. And they did a, a pretty good job of map making. Mm. Um, anyway, so from 1392. And the the 15th century there is just full of uh, accounts of uh, people coming and going, never getting Brazil wood from Brazil and wow. uh, slaves. And uh, the list just goes on and on of things that have been, uh, the artifacts that have been found. Uh, I got a list of them if you want to hear some of them. Sure. Um,
0: Absolutely. Well,
1: I, I'll tell you what.
0: You can mention some examples.
1: Uh, are you familiar with Michael Cremo? Yeah. Are you familiar with something called the Dorchester pot?
0: Uh it rings a bell, rings a bell. Help us out.
1: I'll tell you what, we'll come back to that
0: one. They were uh,
1: in Dorchester, Massachusetts. They were doing some kind of plumbing work or something like that. I don't know, 15 feet down. And they blew up some pudding stone. Right. And when they did it, this uh, pot came out of there and it was in, I think it was in two pieces, but they put it back together. You couldn't even tell its it's been damaged. It's such a beautiful, elegant mm-hmm. piece. Mm-hmm. And it was obviously embedded in this pudding stone. And uh, you'll have to consult geologists. um I've, heard, I've seen the, the literature on it, and it's the thousands of years that it would take to put this pudding stone form around It is beyond. I can't wrap my mind around that, but when I look at this object, it is the perfect expression of form and function. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I know. I don't have it clear in my mind, but go on. I'll take your word for well, it. Well, a, a spoon
1: is a perfect example of form and function. Right. It's got a handle that you hold and a, a, t- a tiny cup that you... It, it is elegantly formed for the function that is that is going to perform.
3: Okay. Anyway,
1: this pot is so designed, it's flared out at the bottom so that it is bottom heavy.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And the top is n- narrowed into a narrow uh, neck. And uh, with some kind of a, a cap there. Um, anyway, I, I looked at this thing and I thought, you could set this vessel on a fine carpet and it wouldn't chip over. And if it did, it would chip right back to, because it's bottom heavy. Mm-hmm. The person who designed this knew exactly what they were doing. And it is so well done. I think it's in the, some kind of a silver alloy that they haven't even figured out what it is yet. Mm-hmm. And however many thousands of years ago, there was somebody living in Dorchester, Massachusetts, who could do that kind of uh, metallurgy. Right. Uh, right. But there's a mystery right there that is beyond. Um, I can't wrap my mind around it, but I know somebody was living there then, and um, it's just a. One of a long list of um, artifacts, there have been artifacts found from every culture, Sumerians, Minoans, Phoenicians, Egyptians, Arabs. Irish, Welsh, wow. Romans, North, Scottish, Portuguese.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't. It doesn't mean that all those cultures necessarily have been there. Some can have been brought over as ornaments or gifts or treasures or or like souvenirs.
1: Yeah. Well, yes. Well, like uh, for example, right here in Louisville, uh, building the bridges across the Ohio there. They found, I think, uh, I don't know whether, it, it might be up to 31. It, it may be only twenty, twenty-two 22 coins. Hmm. But they are uh, dated from, uh, I believe, 268 AD Roman coins. Wow. And you might say, well, okay, the Romans were here then. But I rather take that to be coins from the Madoc uh, expedition. And uh, that Madoc expedition, by the way, it uh, it grew corn. Here for four years before the Indians uh, attacked them and uh, drove most of them out.
0: Uh, Hang on, hang on. Where did you say they were from?
2: This is the Arthur legend that he just mentioned.
0: Oh, this is the Celts. Right, right, right. Okay. There are no Celts.
1: That is um, something concocted by... Oxford and Cambridge in the 19th
0: century. Oh wow! Really? Yes. Wow. Okay. So who who are those we refer to as Celts? They're often red-haired. They're often pale-skinned.
1: Oh, this is really this is really interesting because these are the Cymru, right? And the the Qumri, Are you familiar with the term Cymru?
0: Yeah, Cumran. It's it's in the east,
1: right? The the Greeks called them the Cimmeroi. Right. I'm with you. Uh, Go on they are the Cymru or the, the people who use the Cummeric language
3: mm.
1: these scholars that I ran into from Wales uh, they grew up with these uh, Welsh letters around the, the classroom and when we sent them the, um, the Brandenburg stone they wrote it right back what it said and sent it back to us and like always there's a couple of other inscriptions like that around here But, um, you know, Scott Walter came, he was looking at that Brandenburg stone and the producer came and pulled him at the arm and said, no, the Cumberg language is a, is a fraud. It was an invention and uh, pulled him off to another site and that totally got lost. And and that's a bunch of bunk because that interpretation is based on, what do you, what do you call it? Is it an, an anachronism? When something is out of time, yeah,
0: yeah, anachronism. You, you
1: can't base your you can't base something on on something that hasn't happened yet. Anyway, <laughs> that, that has to do with a uh, Iowa Morgan week. Uh, anyway, and I'm really angry about this because these authors have written a ton of work, and they are being mistreated so badly. I tried to find them on on um, using Google, and boy. They they've combined these authors' names. One was uh, uh, selling construction materials, and the other was lecturing on artificial intelligence. And they used the names, and and, and uh, what well, just made me so mad. Now I know the British government has done all they can to suppress these guys because they don't like what they're saying about their royal bloodline
2: right. or their legitimacy, mm, and so they into buy the them, Sumerian. Oh, history correct
1: uh, they're not david Icke types at all they don't accuse them of they don't accuse them of that, but they do say who they, who they are and um that they are not the ancient kings of the Isles. Hmm. and they know who the ancient kings of the yeah you know it's really interesting this this um do you know when Nebuchadnezzar overran um Jerusalem. Are you familiar with that story? Now,
0: yeah, if it's the basic one.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Judah was the only tribe left in Jerusalem's then. The outlying tribes had all been carried away by the Assyrians. Shalmaneser hmm. uh, and Sinacharab and uh, these guys. Anyway, when right before Jerusalem was overrun, King Hezekiah sent his two daughters and the prophet, I forget which prophet it was, he sent the prophet, was it Jeremiah? Prophet Jeremiah, the, his two daughters, and the, uh, what What was then known as Jacob's pillow, mm. and it was the stone that he used as a pillow when he had uh, the stairway to heaven
3: dream.
1: Mm. Anyway, he sends them to Ireland, and there, one of his daughters, Tamar Tepe, marries Eocloid, the king, the son's, the king of Ireland's son, mm-hmm. and from she gives her name to the hill of Tara, and that stone on which all uh, ten tribal chieftains and I forget how many kings of um, Israel or, and Judah are named were coronated on that stone but it, it moves to Ireland and it stays there for I don't know 58 or uh, so coronations and then it's transferred to Argyle and King Arthur and those guys uh, out of Wales or they're coronating on it and it's another oh I don't know how many 39 coronations or something and then it's the stone is transferred to Scotland, hmm. and there another—I um, don't know—sixty so kings and queens of Scotland are coronated on it. Before it was supposedly taken by the Anglelanders, um to, did they take it to Westminster or to London? I don't—I I can't remember. But anyway, the stone they took is a rectangular piece of limestone. But Jacob's Pillow is reportedly a black piece of basalt, volcanic rock. So I don't think they got the, the right one. But it is interesting to me that, that this goes all the way back, that we can trace all this back to Samaria. Mm-hmm. And there are things going on, folks. <laughs> it goes all the way back to Samaria.
0: Uh, absolutely but but we were it's my job as the host to wrap up loose threads we have a couple of you you need to go back to a couple of things number one you were listing finds in the americas and uh i I ought to add some of those finds can also be souvenirs yeah they may have had visitors they may have had visitors from all over the world but who's to say that native indians also didn't Go out and explore, and come home. That's possible too. In all this huge time span, I mean, we're going back to an ancient advanced civilization, right? Yeah. And I'm convinced that some of the cultures in Americas is from Atlantis. Common source with, uh, you know, I've been reading. Uh, me and Stacey talked a lot about. Uh, or, how do you pronounce his name, Stacey? Uh, <laughs> Plon Plon John. Oh yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, Plon John. Yeah. Yeah, the French my, uh, explorer from... Uh, right,
0: yeah. in Argentina,
2: right? So, yeah, who came here and made some extraordinary claims and also tied the um, Yucatecan language to to Egypt. Right. Uh, which is actually one of the favorite topics of one of my friends here in, um, in town, in San Cristobal. He spent his life actually growing up in Egypt, uh, so he was familiar with some of the... Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of the etymology of the Egyptian language, and then coming here, married a Mayan woman, and has more or less learned four or five, probably working in his fifth Mayan They're language like- now. And uh, and he uh, he he's taken a, a keen interest in Plongeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his um, his his sort of this is all, I don't know if you're familiar with Plongeon, uh Lauren, but he's he's from the uh, 18th century, so we're talking mid 1700s, right? And he came here and explored the um, the Yucatan, lived here, lived among the Maya, Yucatec Maya. Of course, he's completely, um, uh, what would you say, dismissed by academia. But, you know, uh, from the people who live here and the people who speak the languages, he's he's not a quack in any regard. So, yeah. May I, may I on the subject of Egypt, are either of you familiar
1: with uh, this scalm by the name of... Uh, what was your name? Babalona? Uh, anyway.
0: No, no. Hang on. Let's note down Babalona because before you go off on that tangent we need to wrap up um, we were talking about influence on Americas from from other people. That's what I'm doing here. That's, that's what I want to get to right here. Portuguese? Yeah? Okay. Oh, oh,
1: oh no, you want to wrap up the Portuguese? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that story is uh, simply that from 1392 to 1492, the Portuguese had a map of the world and they went around creating colonies. And when Bartholomew and Christopher uh, stole the map and redrew it, Jeez. making Africa look much larger so that it would discourage anybody trying to sail east, they made that look like it was way too, way too far to try And and so they sold that map to the king of uh, Portugal. And, (laughs) and, 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 and when, when, when he discovered something, the first place he went back was not to Spain. It it was to, it was to Lisbon. And, and, and they, you know, they knew what they had done. Uh, He worked in uh, uh, his son's map making office for Christ's sake. So they knew exactly what they'd done. So, to keep these Christian countries from, this meant that those colonies which they had created would now go into Spanish control, hmm. and so the uh, the Pope had to work out an agreement so that the Portuguese could retain their colonies, and and the lie about Christopher colonies Columbus in America, yeah. <laughs> That lie, you know, is like the, uh, the single bullet theory. It is, uh, uh, well, but I did want to make you aware of this gal's, uh, they, t- they found traces of tobacco in the abdominal cavity of Ramses II. And it set off a huge controversy. And in 1992, this gal, Bala Benova, forensic pathologist, she did a study on nine Egyptian mummies about the ancient use of narcotic uh, or hallucinogenic substances. And they found, of these nine mummies, and these were from 1070 BCE to 395 current era, eight of the nine had cocaine,
0: wow. hashish,
1: and tobacco.
0: And, and the chocolate, main- and they had chocolate. Oh my God, that, that's that's India and Americas in one. Yeah. No, it's not India. No, 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 not in India. This is, uh, this is. Hang on, is is cannabis is cannabis natural to the Americas? Yes, yes. Really? Yes, indeed. Wow, from from ancient times. Yes, uh, cocaine only comes from uh, from the Americas
2: and the, the kind of tobacco.
0: yeah that, that I know that I know but I, I thought I thought all marijuana or cannabis came from India originally
1: uh, well look, look here I do want to recommend to you this book World Trade and Biological Exchanges before 1492 mm. uh, because it it has a, a great wealth of information about that okay. but the brand of 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 nicotine they found is American right? and uh, they did not distinguish between the cannabinoids there but the cocaine can only be from the Americas and this means that for 1400 years the upper class of Egypt had access to those chemicals that's right continuously that's exactly right continuously Mm. And, and and so that uh, that's an important point to make here. I could go over the coins. And did you know that when uh, Chief Joseph surrendered to the United States Army, one of the things he surrendered was a Sumerian tablet with cuneiform writing on it?
0: Oh, my God. Where did that one end
2: up?
1: Uh, Well, that's a good question. I would like to know.
2: Vatican. Uh, Vatican vault, obviously. Of the, okay. Vatican? Of course. Yeah, of course the Vatican. Yeah.
0: But he said they surrender to the Americas.
2: Yeah, well, the Americas and the uh, Smithsonian Institute have a long-standing relationship between them and the Vatican. I mean, where do you think the giants are? Mm. (laughs) Mm. Can't have giants around. No. no.
1: According to uh, Mr. Childress, uh, he was able, although they don't have these items on display, he was able to go to the storeroom shack a couple of miles away where he did get to see uh, the bowl with both cuneiform and a uh, Sumerian script on it, and the statue uh, that has both a Sumerian cuneiform and script on it. And those are in La Paz, I believe, and they are still available. Apparently, if you're somebody who has the cloud of uh, Mr. Childress, mm. that's his report, and those are still...
0: Well, he's a good researcher, so...
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. He is. Yes. Anyway. So, what else do you want to wrap up here before we go?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Was there more to wrap up from from the detours we've taken, Stacey, or did we get it all before? We no. I think on?
2: he's pointed out. I mean, I think there's more to the story about the um, uh, the Portuguese map makers and just the the history that goes back with the Arthurian legend. But that's fine. I mean, you know, you could probably do another episode or two. Right, um. but, but
0: not Templars? Uh, well, of course the Templars
1: are, are in this. Their, their mark is all over the place here. And you're right about what you said about the, uh, the Red Cross on his sails. Mm. That was meant for the Templars. Don't fire on me. I'm, I'm a Templar too. Yes, he did expect
0: it. right,
1: right, exactly. And that's why he did not sail north. That's why he kept going south. He did not want. He couldn't. He couldn't sell anything if they found Portuguese uh, ports right. already in the waters north of him. Right. He was a liar. He was a forger. Yeah. He was a, uh, a conspirator of. Uh, I mean, I, I can't believe he stole from one king. Forged the document, sold it to somebody else. This guy was a scammer on 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 such a level.
0: Did he scam? Did he scam his brother too, or was he on good terms with his brother? Uh,
1: I don't know of any. I don't know of any problem there. But uh, they were certainly bold together. I don't know uh, what what consequences Bartholomew suffered. There are a lot of things I don't know about this, but I know enough to paint a, a dire picture, and it's not anything like the the history that you've been that you've oh, been
0: told. Of course, of course. But w- have you heard the um, hypothesis? Yeah. Have you heard the hypothesis that he took slaves uh, from the Greenlanders? Oh yeah.
1: Oh absolutely, mm. absolutely, absolutely. Uh, they were taking slaves there. Uh, something else I wanted to mention to you Uh,
0: and and some of them I think escaped to to Vinland probably sought sought shelter among the natives Mm -hmm. and and was assimilated over time but of course there are Norse traces in some of the cultures of the some of the North American uh, natives Mm -hmm. they found uh, words and also some uh, spiritual um, similarities and I believe there's also some stories among the uh, law, the traditional law that may have survived. I don't know. This is your area. Do you know anything?
1: Well, th- what I can tell you is that this land has been host to a lot of refugee people. Mm. And it's a, it's a way of these people here to uh, to be that way, to welcome uh, strangers and to help them. Mm. That's That's the tradition here. The paradigm that these people brought with them has poisoned the land huh? indeed indeed yeah, poisoned the world: well, here I am, I've got this whole mission to to try to educate people about what is going on in this uh, this world of uh, frequencies and wave interference. Mm. Uh, well, what can I say? Take this where you want to. I'm not sure where to go.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I I can just add to that. There's a court case going on now, right now in America, that is super important for the world, because it's a long story, but the UN Office of Radiation, um, I don't know what it's called, but ICPNR or something, they... um, it's a corrupt industry, and right now there's a court case going up to the Supreme Court, I think, um, where they may be able to smack down on 5G yeah. and also uh, so-called smart meters. So that's a, like, this is like a destructive and bad side of, of vibration, but of course it's just... Neutral technology.
2: Well, they need it for their—they need it for their robots and for their yeah, uh, and their transhumanism. You know, yeah, their transhumanism and plugging everybody in and yada yada yada. I mean, the whole beast system, right, which we're basically up against right now, and people are just absolutely asleep. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know. But if your court now smacks down
0: on it, then it will have. Um, uh, good uh, effect all over the world. Because, well, there are a lot uh, of
2: judges in the United States right now that are fighting back, and they're risking their lives doing it. Right, and it's not just about five G. There's there's the you know the COVID thing and the you know yeah. mandates and everything else, right? Mm. And and you know they're trying to round us all up like cattle and exterminate us or or put us onto uh, for their
0: imagined future. And that brings us to 2012 on the calendar, because yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, Rory, you have an excellent book here that Stacy was so kind as to forward to me. It's called The Sacred Count, The Fractal Calendar of Ancient Mesoamerica. And uh, now this book was written, was it in 2011 you published it? When did it come out?
1: Uh, I, I think it 2015, maybe 2014,
0: 2015. Oh, okay. 14, 15. Okay. And I've been working on it for a long time. It took me a long time to really pierce to the heart. But when did you begin, approximately?
1: Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> 45 years ago, 50. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah. But did you have an idea all the time that 2012 was not the correct end date?
1: Early on, I realized that there that the people who were writing about this were just academic having a, a food fight. And they did want to do the homework. Yeah, And it's a, it's a huge job, and I'm still trying to do this now. I need a computer because I, it's hard for me to wrap my little... Actually, uh,
2: actually just, just before we jump onto that, I actually wanted to mention, because as you know, Al, uh, you introduced me to Cliff, because Cliff would be an ideal person to work with on this. Absolutely. Now, Cliff's obviously up to his eyeballs in current state of affairs, but... If Cliff ends up listening to this, it's it's me who emailed him to introduce him to uh, Lauren's work. And I actually did forward your book to to Cliff there, uh, Lauren. So he does have it. I don't know if he's read it. Um, But the point being that uh, the work that um, that that Lauren has done over the last 50 years in an analog way could be mapped out into a uh, into a uh, program, a simple program for for Cliff to write uh, that would allow us to orient uh, the proper starting and proper end date of the calendar because essentially this whole system is adrift right now. Ah. Um, but Lauren has a pretty good grasp on when this start and end date are probable and why all the current systems are in... Uh, in uh, quackademia, as uh, as, uh, <laughs> as as uh, Jeffries likes to say, um, or not Jeffries, but um, uh, what's your what's your guy's name from? Uh... Stacy. Listen, uh, I want to thank you because there are
1: just a few people who think that I'm uh, brilliant, but you're the only one who has read this book and realized this has importance for everyone. And uh, I want to thank you for. Oh,
2: I think it's I think it's monumental. Um, you know, as just, I don't want to hear you thank me again cause you always do that. But, but the point being that the work shows that there is a, forget the word calendar, forget the words that time and everything mm. understand that what Lauren has discovered accidentally, basically just because he was pissed off about a few inaccuracies that he came across and ended up being a lifelong fascination and obsession. <laughs> but as if you go through the book, if you read it carefully and you understand what he's trying to say, uh-huh. you understand that the universe is operating this way. Mm. It's it's a uh, it, it's it's astounding, really. Mm. And and once you realize that, you realize how much and how important. Like if you like when you look at the the the, the Mayan construct of the universe, you get four pillars, right? And they call them the bacabs. And there's a lot to that. I mean, you could. You could write 10 books just on that. But they've, one of the four pillars, of course, is the concept of time. Mm. And if you're not in a concept of time that is natural, meaning it already exists in nature, then you are completely out of your mind. Right. As a species. Yeah. And so the opportunity here is to reorient ourselves. Now, I've heard Cliff talk about this on his own podcast that he would like to get proper time. And that's why... You know, It's obvious that, ah, that he would... Yeah,
0: but let, let, let me rush to add, he has guaranteed not even read your mail, okay?
2: But, no, I know that. I know that. I'm not worried about that. But I wanted to mention it in this just in case he hears this, right?
0: But, but I can make him aware. Yeah, look, I can make him yeah. aware. Well, he's Next pretty busy. He's
2: pretty busy. But the point is that, that uh, this is the opportunity that exists in Lauren's work. Right. This is what exists there. And I'm telling you, it exists. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a skeptic on every level. When <laughs> I read this book, I was like, wow, this is real. Because it's always pissed me off, too, that the calendar gets used the way it gets used. Right. But, but then Lauren
0: had an idea before he write, wrote, uh, before the book came out. I mean, before 2012, he already knew. Oh, yeah.
2: I mean, he already knew before 2012 that the things weren't right. But, I mean, it takes a long time, especially when you're on your own. Yeah. And you don't have any financial support from a publisher or anything mm. uh, to piece all this stuff together. Because it's, once you read it, you realize, wow, it's a, it's a long process. Uh, to come to these conclusions, and Lauren doesn't cut corners. No. You know, it's one of his charming characteristics, and you know what I mean. He's he's very strict. Right. With himself and anybody he talks to about facts, right? Yeah. Uh, so so you, you got to know that uh, when you read this book. This isn't just a made up story. It's not somebody trying to capitalize on something. I and mean, obviously not because it came out after 2012. If he yeah. was trying to capitalize, he would have sped something out and spit it out quickly. But yeah. Like so many people did, you know. Absolutely, but
0: um, uh, but uh, I must say I've read in it, and it's I mean m- much of it, especially the math, goes over my head. Uh, but it looks legit, and the sources are excellent, and uh, it struck me. Okay,
2: well let me just let me just demystify that right now.
0: I, because, let me complete this sentence. It struck me when I was going through this that I was prepared to read like. An elder native who was well versed in his own stuff, and yeah, you you talked him up, brilliant everything. That I was prepared to, but I wasn't prepared that he was so learned in everything. Yeah. I mean, all cultures, all religions, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's very. Uh, I mean, of course, that's always an advantage when you're writing about universal. Uh, subject matters that you can take into account different angles. So that's brilliant. And I also can judge it from the source work here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bibliography, etc. But I must say much of the math
2: goes far over my head and uh, well, on that point. Yeah. I don't
0: know if it's even possible to dumb it
2: down. Oh well, it is, yeah that's what I was just gonna do. I was gonna summarize what it is. Okay, okay so fractals, yeah, right? Yeah. Fractals are just sequence of numbers that repeat. Mm. That's it. That's all they are. It's a sequence of numbers that repeat. And what's fascinating is that the universe comports to this mathematics. Mm. (laughs) And when I say the universe, I mean near like near earth astronomy, uh, interstellar astronomical phenomena, things that go on long cycles, things that go on hyper uh, speedy cycles. Right. It's all there, and it all syncopates.
0: So it's, it's valid for both macro and microcosmos. Right, so
2: an astronomer and a mathematician who might read this book will just read it, and at first it'll be so astounding they'll dismiss it because that's just, you know, they've got their yeah. cement yeah. in their heads. Yeah. <laughs> no offense to people who are smart and intelligent and academic, but let's face it, when you confront something like this, if you're not an open-minded person and haven't already disassimilated from the academic system, you're going to have a hard time mm. accepting the facts. But when you go through it and you map it out, which is what we would like to do uh, in, a, in a software format with somebody like Cliff who doesn't have that problem, you're going to find that uh, we're actually going to find out where we are in the universe, mm. literally, mm. time-wise. Mm. And that will be a tectonic shift wow. in collective conscience. And, and that's the opportunity. Talk, what about Location in what sense well uh, time and space right
0: so we can yeah. if we can pinpoint us, ourselves where we are in the universe in terms of time is it wouldn't yeah, it be well, opposed- just
2: just the just the realization sorry to speak for you here Lauren, but i just feel like it's a good idea to summarize this stuff for you before we get into the weeds but the point is that that this mathematics isn't just math it's it's the mathematics of real phenomena that exist in nature right. nature being our universal reality which is the, the moon the stars the the planets and and when lauren starts getting into some of the uh, peekaboo um sort of realizations that have occurred uh that get right down to our spatial relationship distance wise from the sun at various times for instance and, and and then that same number system will point out oh the Pilates are are over here and it, it just It's a fractal system, right? Mm -hmm. And when you look at fractals, anytime you go in, it's infinitely detailed. And then, of course, you can pull out and it's infinitely wide. Well, the whole universe is comporting to this. Mm. It's fascinating. Mm. It's fascinating beyond belief. Now, imagine what the impact would be on space travel, for instance, Mm. or, or just... Just the the idea that, that we're in a universe that comports to this stuff. I mean, what do you make of that? Is that God? Is that, uh, is, you know, what is that? Yeah. What is that order? That's an algorithm. Uh, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's basically an algorithm of yeah. the universe. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And what does that open up? Well, we don't even know yet. Right, right. Until May we I? Have the, yes, please.
1: I, I mentioned before about these, uh, these dancing uh, advertisements in the wind. You know what I'm talking about, Stacy?
2: Dancing advertisements? No, I don't know about the dancing advertisements.
1: Sorry. <laughs> they pump hot air into these uh, balloon figures and and uh, they dance in the wind. It's an attention getter.
2: Now all oh, those things. Yes, 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 at uh, car lots and stuff. They always exact, exactly, have those guys. exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. All right, well, these numbers that you're talking about are actually
1: ratios. That are doing an interference, just in the same way that that balloon figure is laced up. It can't go anyplace else than the limitation of, of, of that wave. Huh? So you have these invisible, you have these invisible uh, waves out there that are like shells, if you will. And the, the stuff can't, the maturium uh, can only abide by the physics of this, of this ratio interaction. I'm not expressing myself very well, but I, I can see this, that when we understand what is really going on here mathematically, and it's really easy to understand, and I understand where the deck of cards comes from. That deck of cards of 52 cards, four suits of 13 cards, that 52, that is the handbook for Earth.
0: And I can see these, Igigi, these guys. No, that means the tarot cards are a handbook for Earth. Well, they they likewise, I believe, uh,
1: I'm not an expert on tarot cards, but... Uh, is that forces to
0: 13 yeah it's, uh, the playing cards comes from the tarot so it's like uh, the, the only difference is the playing cards are without the major arcana so the playing cards are basically the minor arcana there's uh, 4 elements and there's from 1 to 13 or from 0 to 12 if you like in each series so yeah yeah, the, the tarot is the playing cards plus 21 extra cards
1: uh-huh. Well, I would have to study that to get some kind of take on what that, what that's about. But yeah. I know that that four suits of thirteen or fifty-two. This is ancient knowledge, and you know when you get to to taking this these things apart, and you realize, well, this isn't this isn't my knowledge. I I stumbled upon this, and this guy knew this. And, and he had to know this because he couldn't have gotten to here. And and to realize that, whoa, they knew it all. Hmm. And you may think that that sounds crazy. But uh, look here. Did you know that the sun rotates each 25 days? Right. Did you know that it is that one quarter day or 0.25 day that really uh, – makes this calendar. We're, we're such monkey guys. You, th- you throw one little quarter at us and we're confused. <laughs> but that quarter, nobody ever thinks that, that has anything to do with the 25,000 mile circumference of the Earth. They don't think of that. But it does. That twenty-five. That 25,000. You know, if you divide that 25,000 by 24 hours, you get 1,041 miles. Now, considering that the Earth is not really 25,000, it's 24,901 plus change, we can discount that one mile, I think, and say that the Earth at the equator is rotating at 1,040 miles an hour. Well, if you divide that 1,040 miles an hour By 260 or one quarter, you get 260 or one quarter, Mm -hmm. which means that 260-day calendar is also the number of miles that we have rotated in one quarter hour, and 1040 is the speed
0: at which we have done that. Mm -hmm. Is there is there any way to measure those things objectively, scientifically? Well, um,
1: my math is uh, is really
0: no. I mean, independent of math, is it possible to just measure the 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 pace of the globe through space? Sure. Obviously, we can measure the spin uh, day and night. That we can measure. Sure. But the- well, I'm telling you, I calculated that, and I'm telling you what it is. Oh, okay, okay.
1: Yeah, that is what that is the speed we're rotating. Uh, our, our rotation is at a speed. Now, of course, that's going to be less the higher out alt- uh, the higher latitude that you that you get. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, basically, that is, or uh, at the equator, that is the that is one quarter the speed of the Earth. So uh, this one quarter or two five or point two five or twenty five thousand or whatnot is this just repeats and and you wouldn't think that that had anything to do with uh, how far we're rotating or how fast we're going, but these things repeat in a what I've come
0: to call a conformal symmetry. And I can believe that I can believe that, but, but what is the pace of the Earth then? Well, the rotation
1: is uh, at uh, 1,041 miles an hour. And that's in miles per hour and in miles.
0: Mm. Yeah, you talk about the rotation, um, day and night rotation. Is that what you're talking about now?
1: Yes. When I talk about the rotation, that's day and night. That is Earth revolving on its own axis. The revolution, but
0: it doesn't. Doesn't it have also, in addition to that, a pace throughout uh, cosmos? I mean, around the sun. Exactly. That's the revolution. The revolution, you call it, yeah. So. so, Yeah, just for just
1: for giggles, uh, if you calculate the distance. And I, I did this uh, as if it were a circle, and it's actually 0.013 or whatnot uh, removed from being a perfect circle. And it's interesting. I figured if you pinched it here, it'll bulge out there. So <laughs> uh, when I calculated it. Yeah. If you divide the, what you get is the distance that we travel in miles in one year is 1 million times the synodical cycle of Venus and how that could be, um, you know, but those things just keep happening and happening. And you see the, the fractal, it's like it creates a shell there uh, and something's going to jump to that shell. Uh, you know, there should be an orbit here, uh, a place where an electron or a planet or or whatever will fall. Mm. It's just the mathematics of it, and it's it's not uh, it's not that difficult uh, I'm not a mathematician now, don't let me scare you uh,
0: well, but okay, it's a bit easier when you have the illustrations in the book you i, I don't know if you did it yourself, but someone has drawn down some of these mm-hmm. formulas like like I'm looking at the mars Venus synodical cycle, yeah, those are all his
2: handwritten uh,
0: hand drawn. This is your handwritten stuff, yeah. oh, okay, nice mm-hmm. handwriting man. Yeah, so that makes it easier than when you try to explain it now uh, verbally, of course.
2: I think, the, I think the point he's making is that the same numbers pop up no matter where you look, Yeah. right? So once he figured out a certain number sequence, he started to realize that everywhere he looked, well, not everywhere, there's a lot of number sequences, a lot of fractal sequences that he's discovered in the process. But the point being that every time he looks at them, new correlations pop up. Right. And those correlations never cease to amaze. And, and when you get down to the idea of, well, how do you measure it scientifically? Well, all this stuff has been measured and he's just using that data as a reference point against these fractal mathematics. Right. So, so, so that's what's in, that's what's contained. It's all verified, uh, scientific, mathem- uh, mathematized, uh, modernized astronomy. It's just that when you look at those numbers in comparison to the number don't forget, all these numbers aren't coming from his imagination. They're coming from the Mayan calendar system.
0: Right. Plus 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 the official astronomical yes
2: numbers. Yes.
0: And they and they, uh, co- and they correlate correlate.
2: Yeah. But he's the only one who's put it together.
0: <laughs>
2: mm, mm,
1: mm. <laughs> That's what's There's amazing. was so much- <laughs> telling you that two hundred and sixty is the number of miles that we rotate each quarter hour? And that quarter hour is the uh, that's the rotation of the sun that is uh, our circumference and and we see it in this quaternarian i don't know whether I'm saying that correctly or not the quaternarian division uh, of the geodesy of uh, not the earth but the the cosmogony huh mm.
2: Yeah, so like correlate the idea of geodesy and geodetic science, which is an ancient science. We all know that.
1: Yeah.
2: But uh, the fact that it extends out into the uh, the near Earth and interstellar universe is is just amazing. And it's all encoded in the in the calendar systems. So when he's talking about two hundred and sixty, he's talking about the Zolkin, the heartbeat of the Mayan calendar, which is a thirteen twenty time sequence. Mm. So you got thirteen, you got twenty, you got two hundred and sixty, you've got uh, 5,200. You've got these number sequences that are encoded into the into the Mayan calendar, and when you pull them apart and and correlate them the way he has, you find out that the entire universe comports to these basic numbers. <laughs> it's really amazing. Right. <laughs> yes, and it is difficult for anybody who's ne- who's not even familiar with the base numbers of the of the calendar. So. When we describe this mathematics we have to at least start with okay well these are the numbers we're working with 260 1320
1: 5200 etc and so, yes we can go through the basics of it so somebody can get a handle on uh, what we're talking about you yeah and I don't
2: it? I don't think it's necessary for you to explain everything because ideally we want people to listen to this and go buy your book right so a little mystery is okay I think if we explain the overarching concept, which is that all these numbers that are in the calendar system correlate in various astr- amazing ways to you know the the reality that is spinning all around us in this uh, in this universe, and that is enough, I think, really. Yes, uh, that is why people need to buy your book because it is. Something that they have to grasp and they have to get the can basics you before they can. Do even, it. Yeah, so I, I think, Lauren, that it's it's fine. Yeah, so don't worry about it.
1: Oh, you're doing a great job of trying to give this direction because I could, you know, I got so many things I want to talk with Al about that. Uh, I'm well, pretty jump in then.
2: because I was just saying, uh, Al. Yeah, I don't think we need to focus on the math because that's why people should buy the book. Right. Uh, The concept is that uh, there's these base numbers in the mathematics of the calendar, which I explained. Um, We didn't get into what they are, but anybody out there who's ever come across a Mayan calendar and spent any time in it knows there's this 260-day, 360-day, 365, uh, 5200, etc., that are embedded in this calendar. And those are the numbers that, when you unpack them, form the mathematics that uh, correlate to all these real phenomena that are measurable. But the fact that they point to all these, like it's just a laundry list of everything that's going on in the cosmos. That's what's amazing. And, and nothing is missed. That's also amazing. There isn't a gap. Right. You know, he's already working on his second book about all these things that he missed in the first. And the first is jam-packed. Right. Yes, it is. <laughs> and, and I'm sure you could just go on. And this is why the the, uh, the software is, is very important. gotcha. That.
0: But, but, boys, boys let's, uh, let's, uh, let's take a break, take a break, now, break now, okay? okay. Sure. And then and we, go we go into, into this, this when we reach out.
2: All of our files are free and will remain free.
3: If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our webpage. Thanks.